Hey everyone and welcome to a brand new format, a weekly Digital Foundry Direct where we're going to be talking about the week's news, the projects that we're working on and we're also going to be fielding a bunch of questions from our Patreon supporters on the Digital Foundry Supporter Programme. So yeah, something we hope to be running each and every week on Monday, uh, something for you to look forward to. And maybe, just maybe, our Patreon supporters will get to see this show a couple of days early. But I'm not alone here. Joining me, first of all, from Frankfurt, John Linneman. Hey Rich, how's it going? I'm uh... <laughs> I'm kind of excited to do this. We've been wanting to do kind of a weekly podcast style show, if you will, uh, just a discussion to kind of catch up on the news that we might have missed this week, uh, other things that we maybe haven't done a video on, as well as just updates on what we've been working on and all that kind of stuff, plus the questions, of course. So uh, I'm looking forward to this. Uh, yeah, exactly. And uh, also joining us from Berlin, uh, a rather splendid looking Alex Batalia. Hello, Rich. Hello, John. Uh, yeah, thanks. I'm really happy to be here. And I'm also really happy that we can finally uh, get to do this. Like John said, uh, we've been looking to do it for a while, and now we finally have the resources. Excellent stuff. Well, let's kick off. Let's start by taking a look at what I think is probably the biggest story of the week. And that is the reveal. Uh, unconfirmed so far, of course, but I do think it's a bit of a done deal at this point of a new switch in the offing. Many people are referring to it as the Switch Pro, but it is a new switch. It is using a 720p, apparently an OLED screen. Um, I'm curious about this. What do you reckon, John? So, um, yeah, this is an interesting proposition. To me, it sounds like it's just gonna be kind of a refresh uh, of the system. Some slight changes made, but there's we don't have any indication about what's changed internally. But I do think the screen thing is an interesting point to discuss because I've seen a lot of people saying it's still 720p. How can that be? Uh, but I actually think that's a smart choice in this case because first of all, at that size, at 7 inch, 720p, it still has a solid pixel per inch kind of uh, rating, I guess you could say. So it still appears very sharp. But already on the current Switch, we have most game, not most, I'd say at least half, maybe more games uh, don't actually hit native 720p when in portable mode, as is, which means you're scaling up. So if they had gone for a 1080p screen, I think everything would pretty much be scaled in portable mode, which is really bad. You don't want, like, a lower resolution screen combined with native pixel res is always, always, always going to look better than a higher resolution screen where you're scaling up. So... I don't think we would have seen enough or many games actually hitting 1080p in portable mode at all. Uh, so you just wind up with everything scaled. And I don't think that's a wise choice. Plus, lower resolution screen and plus OLED, actually, it's kind of it's it saves on uh, energy. So that means improved battery life. Um, and, you know, just OLED in general, I think, is, is a big jump if that's indeed the case, because... As you know, the Vita was was re renowned for this, but that was a very basic, uh, I don't want to say subpar, but it wasn't an amazing OLED screen. The black levels were not perfect as they are on OLED TVs and more modern phones, and there were some other issues with it. I think modern OLED technology is, is so much better that this will just look phenomenal in comparison, especially when you consider that the current Switch, if you just look at the screen in the light, even with nothing on it, it, the material it's made out of gives it this gray look 
that I don't think is that attractive. So this will help a lot with contrast. Well, I think from my perspective, um, I think people might be getting the wrong idea. I do agree with you. I do think it is going to be a refresh model similar to the uh, later 3DSs that came with larger screens. That's kind of how I see that fitting into the family. Um, what we do have, information on new Switch models that has always proven reliable has come from the team that reverse engineer the firmware and produce the Atmosphere OS, uh, which kind of opens up the system. They have actually uh, looked into the firmware and since I think version 10.0, there have been references to a new switch retail unit and you know they have the full <laughs> technical specification again unconfirmed but it is the same tegra x1 that's in the current models which i believe is a 16 nanometer version of the original chip um, and they're saying it's got four gigs of ram exactly like the current model but it does have a new display controller there may well be um uh, facilities for upscaling to 4K, but I suspect it would be a you know basic upscale just so it works properly on 4K screens. Um, beyond that, there's nothing. So you know if we look at that Tegra X1, we've got a bit of extra GPU headroom. They could increase CPU clocks if they wanted, but I don't think they're going to. I just think it would cause head problems for developers. You kind of brought this up yesterday. Is that I don't think right now Nintendo could afford to do a die shrink down to like seven nanometer with a new chip because like you say, there's just no space on the fab lines right now. Right. Nobody can get these chips made. So I don't think Nintendo wants to produce a new device that's going to be that hard to manufacture that they couldn't get them out. Where if they stick with the current chip and the current process, uh, it's a lot more feasible for them to be able to make as many as they need. So uh, yeah. I think that makes sense from a manufacturing standpoint as well. So I think no Switch Pro, as many people would want it, you know, with new silicon. Uh, there's obviously been a lot of discussion about DLSS upscaling. And, you know, some people saying, hey, well, they can just slap on a DLSS chip to the current design. What do you make of that, Alex? So, yeah, I've also heard a bit about this uh, DLSS and the new Switch and people uh, kind of wondering about it. The first thing I want to talk about uh, regarding that is essentially that DLSS is not a um, hardware technique where you can just plug any game into it and take advantage of DLSS. Uh, it requires engine software specific programming for each individual game that'll be different that requires to be hooked up for DLSS to work. So you can't just, uh, for example, have DLSS apply to all games regardless of what's happening because there's hardware there. Uh, the second thing I want to say is that it obviously then can't enhance older games. For example, a new Switch with DLSS uh, capabilities wouldn't all of a sudden have older games being able to use DLSS. Uh, they would require uh, patches and compatibility patches essentially for that kind of thing to work. Uh, the, the third thing I want to mention then, I guess, is that um, the way DLSS is done, it's running on the uh, NVIDIA's Tensor Cores, and those cannot be really off chip in a, in a way. I'm pretty sure they use uh, a lot of the same caches and stuff as a, as, as a part of the rest of the SM unit, you know, with like the shader core and the RT cores in it as well. So uh, it's, there's no really, I think, chance of a separate docking unit where you plug in the switch uh, to that, and then the docking unit separately would have hardware capabilities to then uh, start allowing it to uh, machine-learned upscale 
outward. Uh, I think it is required to be part of the GPU uh, for that to work. I kind of feel like the only way to do a dock that really enhances the system would be to essentially have a completely separate GPU or SOC in the dock. And then the switch hardware itself, like the portable unit is not doing the processing. It just becomes like a, a link basically like you connect it and it like shares some data, but all the processing happens on the dock side. Like that is feasible, but I, I'm positive. That's not what we're talking about here. So I just don't, I'm really unsure how this would work. Well, something that I uh, picked up on in your Doom Switch interview with uh, its software and Panic Button, John, is basically that uh, Panic Button seemed not keen on the idea of porting next-gen PlayStation and Xbox titles to the current Switch. Uh, they, they thought it was possibly a step too far. But I do think that if uh, we move on to a new NVIDIA SOC, if it is based on a modern architecture, if the CPU is uh, significantly beefed up, if we do have AI features that possibly won't even be in the current generation of consoles, uh, it could be a really nice machine. But I think a lot of what people want are kind of big ideas and big technological statements that are best reserved for a Switch 2 as opposed to an enhanced version of the current offering. That's kind of my final thoughts on the topic, really. Recently, we saw an announcement, I guess it was a week or two ago, where Sony basically revealed that they're doing the next generation PSVR. Right. Um, and I kind of wanted to, you know, touch on that, because I think this is, this is something we've all kind of expected would happen. And for me, uh, it's really interesting, because PSVR, it's getting, on, it's getting up there in age at this point, right? So I think it was from 2016, if I recall. Yeah, so it was the it's, same year as PS4 Pro. It was remarkable. Yeah, they right. Both simultaneously. <laughs> exactly. So obviously, uh, VR technology has continued to improve significantly uh, in time. But um, so there's a lot of potential here. Now, the first for a while, I had always kind of thought like, oh yeah, maybe they're going to do like a wireless headset kind of design. Um, but I, they revealed that it's going to be a single wire which also makes it seem like it's just going to connect directly to the PS5 as opposed to requiring an additional box, which definitely makes sense if you're engineering a new console, just to feature that straight up. Yeah, there's been there's been some reverse engineering of the PCB of the PS5, and it looks as though the USB-C port on the front supports uh, displays, which kind of makes sense. There you go. So that would that would exactly. So I'm sure it's just a USB-C cable. Though to be honest. Uh, it's a pretty small port and I hope it doesn't, you know, have issues when under load, if you know what I mean, because, well, I guess we'll have to see how they design that cable. It would basically just be like uh, the USB virtual link on the Turing GPUs and the new Radeons. Yeah, it would be that. It's just that the main issue there is like when you're in VR, you're putting weight on that cable because you move, you're moving right. around, you know, you know what I mean? So it's, it's a like, physical it, thing then. Yeah, It's a physical thing that I'd be worried about. Uh, so... But I assume that they're taking that to, into account with the design. Uh, but then also, you know, I'm really excited about potential for increased FOV, you know, higher resolution screens. And then we've also seen some of those patents for the new controllers, which seem to resemble, um, uh, what is it, the Valve Index hand controllers, or the Knuckles, as they <laughs> call it, I believe. So that actually is the game changer for, for PSVR users, because... If you've only used VR on PS4 or with PSVR, then you're kind of missing like half of what the experience brings, which is 
there is the tracking system. I assume that with the way PSVR 2 will work, they'll probably attempt something like an inside-out tracking, similar to what Oculus is doing. That would make the most sense to me. But having really high-quality hand controls, plus better like room scale or like you know tracking around the environment, that is so important to the P PC VR experience, and it's something that just doesn't work well at all on PSVR. So I think that alone will be like a next-gen thing, and that's what would allow games like, not that it would necessarily be ported, of course, but like Half-Life Alex, Boneworks, like those games just wouldn't work on a PSVR. Like aside from the rendering tech, they wouldn't feel very good. I mean, it could technically work, but it would not be pleasant to play, I think, in comparison. So this is kind of exciting for me. I just think on a technical level and on a concept level, I'm just really happy that Sony are doing another one. Uh, yeah, because exactly. it's not entirely clear how successful the first one was for Sony uh, from a kind of overall perspective. So it's really good to see them actually doubling down on it because we've still, still seen nothing from it from um, uh, Microsoft. And meanwhile, we've got stuff like the Oculus Quest 2, which I own, and I think it's just brilliant. But, you know, the ability to have a mainstream console platform with a high-end VR solution is just excellent. Yeah, and that's the kind of thing that I think will keep help keep VR alive. You know, just another platform, more accessible, hopefully well-priced. And hopefully yeah. by the time it launches, people will actually be able to, be able to get PlayStation 5s. <laughs> yeah, there is that, <laughs> of course. Yeah. Any thoughts on the new PSVR, Alex? Yeah, um, I'm kind of thinking, uh, I'm not sure what it signals in terms of the software side, though, because it feels like it's been a while other than, I don't know, we haven't seen a lot of, Sony first-party or third-party sponsored development uh, PSVR titles in a while as it kind of went under. And I kind of hope that when they bring out this PSVR 2 uh, with PS5 support, uh, that we see a new influx of kind of titles developed just for VR for it. Uh, I think that was a really strong initiative that they had when they brought out PSVR and brought out some really good titles that I tried out at John's house once. Uh, I found a couple of them really awesome. Uh, and I just hope that this new push in hardware of them supporting it also means a directed push from Sony in terms of software as well, too. Well, speaking of software, we had some new PSVR stuff announced uh, this week. Uh, and you seem quite excited about one title in particular, John. <laughs> yeah, so they announced, and this is interesting because it kind of felt like PSVR was end of life, but there's still stuff being announced for it. And they announced Doom 3 for the PSVR. <laughs> and Brilliant. So the, this title has a lot of history with VR yeah. because this was the title that John Carmack was messing with back when he was first made aware of the Oculus technology working with Lucky and them. Uh, he showcased a prototype headset at E3 that year and Doom 3 was the game that they used. Uh, and this was kind of like the beginning of the resurgence of modern VR. And then it was intended that when Doom 3 BFG would ship, it would have VR support. But then the whole Carmack, Oculus, uh, Zenimax thing kind of happened, and it just got real shaky, and uh, that went away. And we kind of had to rely on like mods from the PC side to get it into the game. Uh, so now, though, I guess things have been worked out in an interesting way, and I, I, I don't know mm -hmm. what it's like on the back end, but they've actually gone ahead and announced proper... VR integration into Doom 3, and based on what you can see in the trailer, 
it seems to be significantly more advanced than what it was originally intended yeah. to be. Obviously, VR has changed. Like, it does seem to be using, uh, I guess, the move for hand controllers because you could actually see them, like, hold up the wrist and look at, like, ammo counts and stuff on the glove. And, I mean, technically, the move should work well enough for the kind of simple interactions of Doom 3. So it's not like Half-Life Alex, where you have all these granular motions. So I think it could actually work really well. But no announcement of a PC version yet. Uh, yeah. ho hopefully it will come. Yeah, I'm, I'm imagining now that uh, Microsoft has their say in all things ZeniMax, and I guess all things Doom as a result now, um, that there's probably less uh, bad blood uh, Bad blood, John. Uh, bad blood. <laughs> uh, bad blood between um, those kind of parties that were involved back then in the whole John Carmack dispute. So I'd hope we'd see it on other uh, PC VR platforms and who knows, maybe Oculus as well. Okay, so the next topic I think we need to discuss are the reveal of the Radeon RX 6700 XT. Mm -hmm. uh, interesting this because... I don't know. It's not big navy anymore. Perhaps medium navy. Navi light. I don't know. <laughs> not quite. Not quite as gigantic navy. But mm -hmm. um, interesting uh, stuff that was in the reveal there, where they seem to be pitching it up against like thirty sixty Ti, uh, mm -hmm. thirty seventy even, uh, which is really quite bold. Now, it's quite an interesting scenario here because it is a part that has forty compute units. The sixty eight hundred, I think, has sixty. <laughs> um, this is going to be four hundred and eighty dollars. The sixty-eight hundred, notionally, of course, is uh, oh, five hundred and fifty, I believe. So, Alex, what do you think about this? Um, I think uh, it's really hard to talk about these GPUs on just a technical level without discussing the market situation, which is, you know, always on the back of well, it's the, it's the most forefront thing. These the, the the price that they're putting this out for is not going to be the price that it's going to be available for in all likelihood for many users, especially depending upon the country you're in with the kind of uh, production and uh, GPU wafer shortage that probably is also occurring on top of so many other things and the bots. Uh, so talking about the GPU right now for its price point is a little hard. I think it's priced okay at its MSRP. Um, I, I think it could be better. I'm a little kind of like the, with the 3060. I'm a, uh, the RTX 3060, that is. I'm, I'm a, I think it almost should be like a slightly cheaper card for some reason. Um, just looking at like where we are advancing over time in the GPU space, that this price point has been a certain level of performance for, in my opinion, maybe a little too long. Um, but beyond that, I, I think the, um, the general specs that it have are, are really great for looking at comparing to next-gen GPUs found in the consoles. It is more expensive by MSRP, but we're also looking at something that will have uh, infinity cache, uh, and it is targeting a 1440p uh, kind of performance bracket, whereas consoles kind of always push for uh, resolution a little bit more than 1440p. And I think actually in that like bracket where, they, where they're throwing it in with 1440p as the, the goal, I think this is pretty awesome, actually. It'll probably be when we get our hands on it, we'll, we'll see really good return at that resolution uh, for price. That's eh, a whole other question, but I, I like the way the GPU looks, at least in their initial showing. The one thing that I was a little perturbed by, um, I guess, is where they showed like a spread of games and they kept iterating the, the max settings mantra 
Well, one, I don't think max settings are a great thing that we should be targeting for games. But I also am not sure um, if max settings were actually on in all of these examples, because they show things like, uh, I don't know, like Cyberpunk was on there. And I guess they're assuming max settings before uh, ray tracing is enabled uh, for AMD GPUs, because I don't know if it would exactly be that exact same place next to its RTX companions. Uh, in, in, yeah, the, in the little I chart agree. There. Um, yeah, if max settings isn't including ray tracing, it by definition it is not max settings. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, that's a, that's a kind of difficult uh, circle to square there. Uh, my perspective on the GPU um, seems to me that uh, AMD have done a fantastic job of increasing clock speeds, uh, RDNA two, mm -hmm. and we've already seen benefits of that. Uh, on the consoles, uh, specifically PS5, which is getting an awful lot of performance out of 36 compute units. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really, really impressive stuff. And it seems to me that AMD now have actually taken the frequency uh, advantage over NVIDIA. Their, their GPUs tend to be in the 1.9 gigahertz area, whether that's down to the fabrication node, whether it's down to the uh, you know, internal wiring on the GPU. Who knows? But uh, that is a strong advantage that they have. But you know, if we consider medium Navi to be a, you know a slightly less performant version of the lower end big Navi, we should expect to see the ray tracing performance uh, to scale in line. Um, and I guess also they still have the fundamental issue of um, limited machine learning support and. As we saw recently with your Neo video, uh, mm -hmm. DLSS just seems to be able to do a phenomenal level of work uh, in terms of making sure that the GPU doesn't need to spend all of its time painting pixels. I think that's a huge advantage. We still haven't seen AMD's solution to that. I was really hoping that we would see this temporal upscaling solution. Yeah, that, so th that was kind of the main thing I was thinking about. As you look at the price of this versus, say, like the 3060, uh, and, you know, let's say for a moment that these cards are actually possible to purchase because that's a whole different yeah. issue, I think. But I kind of feel like, um, I mean, I I'd be curious to hear your thoughts, but it still feels like the 3060 might have an advantage here if you factor in things like DLSS and support for ray tracing and mach you know machine learning capabilities and all of that. And really, when you look at big the lower end big Navi versus this, I feel like the price, like the the price gap isn't as significant as I would expect, since you're cutting the VRAM down, you're getting down to forty compute units. So, mm -hmm. I mean, it, it looks like a great card on paper for sure, but it does the pricing is what seems a little bit weird to me. I don't know. I think if you uh, look at AMD's big success story, which is Ryzen, um, they are now proper competitors to Intel to the point where in terms of mainstream yeah. desktop chips, they are way ahead. And if we look at how they got way ahead, a number of factors. First of all, the platform wasn't limited in the way Intel chips are, um, yeah. you know, memory overclocking and whatnot. Uh, you could overclock any chip. Uh, you could have new features first, like PCI Express 4.0. You got more cores for your money. Um, and that's kind of the story of Ryzen, really. It was properly disruptive. You know, you had the technology, you had the cores, you had the price. The pricing was just super aggressive. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess that is the biggest challenge outstanding for Radeon in taking on NVIDIA, is that 
the competition isn't quite as um, relaxed uh, as Intel got. Uh, and, you know, it's, a, it's much more of a pitched battle. And the pricing says to me that they can't, you know, they can't deliver a Ryzen moment in the GPU space, certainly not for now. But certainly there are a number of things that have been addressed. The performance differentials uh, on rasterization are clearly much closer Mm-hmm. Um, than than they were previously. Obviously, AMD didn't have access to GDDR6X. They overcame that with the Infinity Cache. So there's a lot of really smart engineering happening with Radeon at the moment. I guess another thing which um, uh, sort of concerns me a bit is if there is limited access to seven nanometer wafers at TSMC. I suspect from a strategic perspective. It makes sense for AMD to use more of their available wafers for Ryzen than it does for Radeon because they'd make more money from them. Yeah. But on the on the flip side, that sort of um, limits their their kind of uh, competitiveness on the GPU space. But in terms of the 6700 XT, really looking forward to trying it out. Really looking forward to seeing you know how those how this smaller amount of compute units performs when given a really decent amount of GPU clock. And um, certainly the numbers that they came up with uh, were punching above their weight, I think. But, you know, they kind of always do. Then again, you know, (laughs) um, the numbers that they came up with for the 6800 XT, they all checked out. So I'm just really looking forward to to getting the product in hand and seeing what it's capable of. Yeah. One one thing I want to say is you did mention it, John, about the importance of, or even Richard, uh, the importance of DLSS and how it's a little weird how we haven't seen the AMD solution and competitor solution to this. Uh, at the at the, the announcement, they did show off a bit of footage of Resident Evil Village uh, running on PC uh, using, I presume, uh, DirectX uh, ray traced reflections and whatever uh, features are also found in the console version. Maybe there's more, hard to tell. Um, but they also said like plus fidelity effects uh, as a part of that. and. Um, I wish they had just a little bit more specific nomenclature <laughs> for their fidelity effects suite because it has like eight or nine different effects in it right now. And uh, when they put that in there in the, in the little announcement, I actually wasn't sure what at all it was referring to. Uh, so I would actually like to see some more clarity on their virtual super resolution or whatever they're going to end up calling this thing. Um, and just also to learn how it technically works because they have it in a little corner in one of the graphs that they were showing off. Uh, and I would just like to learn more about it because it's going to be a big deal in the next coming years because ray tracing is expensive. Uh, games are going to be targeting bigger GPUs and consoles eventually, maybe even 30 FPS there. So getting to your all important 60 FPS on PC is going to be so much harder. Technology like that is really, uh, really important. I'm really excited to see it, but um, fundamentally, I think there was an interview with a German outlet where they ruled out that it would be using machine learning, in which case we've got a huge amount of temporal supersampling and upscaling technologies via various developers Mm -hmm. uh, on the market right now. And uh, to to match DLSS, it's going to be really, really difficult. Personally, if I was AMD, I'd be straight on the phone to Insomniac to ask them how their <laughs> temporal supersampling technology works, because I honestly think it's the best that I've seen. Yeah, it's really yeah. good. <laughs> One last thing I wanted to get in is uh, we were mentioning earlier, uh, John, you said like the 
RTX 3060 is an interesting competitor because of these technological, uh, technological differences. Uh, but they also, yeah. the RTX 3060 has this weird, uh, I would say, design where it has a lot of VRAM in a GPU that I'm not sure it's ever going to really need it uh, based upon its like target compute level. Um, I think we perhaps at some uh, level uh, at Digital Foundry should in a video in the future do a good investigative report into the actual necessary uh, amount of VRAM required at games at certain resolutions before stuttering is induced. And not just the, the yeah, numbers oh yeah. reported because we know those numbers are not always reliable, but it's a matter of like, okay, at, at what level of VRAM can we in FCAT actually start seeing degradations in performance? That's more important than saying th this GPU uses nine gigabytes or 10 gigabytes of VRAM. The thing is though, Alex, is, you know, YouTube content creation is becoming bigger and bigger. You know, we're doing it, but a lot of other people are doing it as well. And I think it's really, you know, the more VRAM you can pack into a lower priced product, the better for video production. Yeah. So yeah. while obviously games are the focus for these cards, I think today content creators also need to be taken into account for this kind of stuff. And if you have that extra bit of VRAM helps so much uh, when editing video and like Adobe software, especially. So much, yeah. I think uh, my final point on this, we've been talking about the 3060. This is uh, uh, basically, a, well, notionally a $330 part. This is a $480 yeah. part. So um, I think that AMD think they have a good chance against the uh, 3070 with this one. A bit cheaper, so possibly not quite as performant overall. Uh, that's kind of how things worked out with pricing on Big Navi, Big Navi. Um, so yeah, interested to see how everything uh, pans out on that. I'm kind of more curious about the 6700, uh, which you know a cut down version, which must be arriving at some point. Wasn't announced then, but uh, I guess that would possibly bring the value. But yeah, I mean 6700 XT MSRP for what it's worth, four hundred and eighty dollars. Thirty sixty Ti is four hundred, so that's a quite a big gap. So AMD must really fancy their chances. Mm -hmm. uh, up against the 3070 on that one so i guess you know that's that's the main news items for this week but i think we have something else to discuss and announce this week yeah so um in producing this show we need more resources we need more people on board and who better to be the producer of this show than audie surly who's <laughs> who's been kind of like a behind the scenes contributor for many yeah. many months now and I guess you've got some stuff you want to talk about, John. Yeah, so let's cut over to uh, the other camera and talk about some of our retro pickups and uh, some new games that were revealed uh, just yesterday. And here we are with our new man on the ground who's uh, obviously, as we said, he's been helping out on the channel for quite a while in the background, but now more so in an official capacity. Uh, I'm joined by Audie Surly, our man on the ground. How's it going, John? Uh, it's good to have you here, finally, officially. Uh, there's a few topics we're going to discuss just to kind of pack in here for a little bit of fun. Maybe this will become a segment uh, on the show because uh, I don't think Rich is too much of a collector, so probably not into this stuff. And the other thing, well, let's just see. So we're going to start, actually, I want to discuss uh, very quickly some of the pickups we got this week because you and I, we uh, collect retro games. We're often... 
picking up new games. Sometimes they take a month or so to arrive, depending on where they're shipped from. So I had a package arrive yesterday with four great games. Uh, so, so my uh, my games end up in uh, Richard's mailbox, so I don't even get to true. see them for months. That's true, exactly. Especially the CDI games. Yeah. So the, fir- the first one I picked up actually is uh, I got the PC Engine version of Batman at last. The, which uh, the first a- uh, Trash Man uh, simulator on the PC yeah, this, Engine. This, this is the game where Batman literally takes out the trash. He cleans up the streets. Uh, it's an overhead kind of game. But it's surprisingly fun. It's just not very Batman, but the music and the aesthetic is actually fantastic. So it's a fun, weird, quirky game, but I like it. Yeah, some of the tracks are actually uh, remixes of the NES tracks. Yeah, exactly, so, exactly. Uh, but the I think actually the original stuff in that game, music-wise, is uh, just as good. If it not, is. Sometimes better. Sometimes so, better. Um, I, I can agree with that. And I so love that are, NES soundtrack. Heck yeah. So what about you then? What's what's your first pick this week? Did you get anything? So I haven't gotten much the last month just because I've been working pretty hard and haven't had time. Um, I have some on the way though, and I do hope that we can do this segment quite often every week maybe, and then uh, look at our pickups. But uh, I have to report that this week I am empty-handed. All right. Well, let me then. I'll just uh, quickly run through these these other ones before we get to the next news segment. Uh, I get picked up. Splatterhouse Wanpaku Graffiti. Yeah, you were asking is, me about this. Yeah, it came up for a very good price. It's uh, It comes in one of these little hard cases like the uh, Sunsoft Famicom games or Mega Drive games. And or Namco games. Oh, yeah, exactly. All the Namco Famicom games come in these cases. Pretty much. So, uh, But basically, it's sort of a, uh, a chibi-style take on Splatterhouse. It's kind of a... I always kind of likened it to like Splatterhouse meets Parodius where, you know, it's a lighthearted take on what was sort of a horror-driven franchise. Right. Uh, and it has stuff like uh, Dracula doing the moonwalk. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the thriller. Other, yeah. Oh, it's Thriller. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's it's fun. It's a cute little game. has some cool technical features as well. One of those NES games or Famicom games, the parallax scrolling. So definitely cool. I think it's uh, not the strongest of the... Um splatterhouse games though it's not the no. best in gameplay terms uh but it is a fun collectible it's like kid dracula from namco yeah there you go exactly uh which you know it's a really cool game uh next one i picked up was uh the japanese version of super off-road which has a utterly bizarre cover art i think uh this one yeah. was just dirt cheap and i really love super off-road and it's like okay i need to pick this up this is a uh, what is it? It's like um, Iron Man. Oh, I'm forgetting the name, but you know. Was that done by Packin Video? I saw. Yeah, it was. Oh, okay. Almost looked like a Stunt Race FX when you look at that it cover. It does. You're right. It totally does. But no, this maybe is they just switched the covers. It was just uh, it's the wrong game. No, it's a, it's know. a truck crushing another truck. Oh, I see. Okay, okay. It's a pretty cool cover I, though. I love that game, though. Uh, and then lastly, I finally got, um, for a very good price, the Japanese version. Well, I guess it's the only official release of OutRun 2 SP. Yeah. Which, uh, so this was the... First of all, it comes with an extra SST band uh, bonus CD, which is cool. But more importantly, this this version of the game actually had more work done on it, 
before it released and it has some extra extra features and it's a bit polished up compared to the other western release of outrun 2 coast to coast on ps2 so you all the frame rate issues are gone uh and it's just sort of a polished up super complete version of that game and it's it's really cool and it's still this game was designed for the xbox hardware but they do some really amazing tricks to simulate things like pixel shaders on the water like it's not actually pixel shader uh on ps2 but it looks darn close so maybe i'll look at that in an outrun video someday yeah, we should definitely do a uh, outro on DF Retro, huh? Uh, that game, I, I remember the very first time I was visiting you a few years ago, I mentioned to you that, hey, I have this game. And uh, I don't know if you were too familiar with it at the time, uh, but I did tell you then that uh, this was actually my last purchase from Lick Sang, that old web yeah, store. Yeah, that's and right. <laughs> I bought that at Lick Sang, I think the same week that unfortunately, uh, due to um, a certain company, they had to close down. So yep, uh, it was pretty right. sad, but um, that was my last purchase there. So I always this, have a it, sentimentality for that game, other than being an awesome game. It was a really late release, too, I think. Like 2006, yeah. 2007 kind of period. But yeah, that's good stuff. Uh, so yeah, quick little pickup corner there. And then before we jump back to Richard and Alex, I guess we should briefly touch on some of the cool reveals uh, at a recent show that happened online. Yeah, so there was a new game expo this uh, week, and uh, man, uh, I was thinking while watching this that I've been in the video games industry for 17 and a half years, which gives me existential nightmares thinking about that, but in the last year, I think we've seen more change in regards to how we announce games, how we market, how we release games, and even develop, and uh it's going to be interesting as we go back to normal, hopefully sooner than later, how these shows are going to fare when physical events are back. So I wonder if shows like New Game Expo will expand and do new things. Because, I mean, this is a pretty cool show. It's a cool endeavor. And I hope that it can continue even when bigger shows are back. So for those that aren't familiar, though, this is basically this was a chance for various Japanese publishers and developers to showcase kind of what they're working on. Uh, and there was some really cool stuff shown there. Like yeah. some of the highlights for me, I think uh, it was great to see some some real gameplay from R Type Final Two. Oh man, yeah, and it's coming out name, soon. But it's coming out really <laughs> soon. I think they actually pushed it up. So yeah, I think so. Last I heard of it, I think it was supposed to be later, but now it's coming sooner. So um, that's yeah. good from Nice America. We also got a glimpse at the Pocky and Rocky sort of remake being done in the same style as uh, the Ninja Warriors once again. Uh, and, yeah, by uh, Tango Wild Project. Guns Reloaded. Yeah, exactly. Those guys, uh, amazing. Like the sprite work, the quality of the artwork in that, just absurdly impressive. Yeah, we should talk about Kiki Kai Kai a little bit, or Pocky and Rocky Reshined, because I don't know about you, but I kind of feel like Tango Project is kind of like the Christian Whitehead of Japan. You know, they're the kind of people that... <laughs> take the original concepts make them better and kind of uh people always point at the super nintendo for their games of course because there are originally super nintendo games but i feel like these are almost like super saturn games where yeah it's just i mean they very much expanded yeah they're hugely expanded the visuals are far more impressive than the super yeah. NES originals i mean uh, sprite really sizes and sprite sizes animation frames you know they expanded it to a larger screen area it's it's super impressive so I kind of wish they got a little bit more recognition for that because the the games I tend to see them marketed very much like hey Super Nintendo games in HD, 
which isn't really the case. It is no. much more like a Sonic Mania thing where it's a reimagining yeah. with the foundation in 1632. Exactly. So exactly. Check out Ninja Saviors or um, Wild Guns Reloaded if you haven't. So yeah, those are some... I mean, those, the, there was also... I guess there was Blaster Master, Zero Three, um, Azure Striker Gunvolt 3, great stuff yeah. from Indie Creates. We saw a friend of the show, Matt Papa, on there streaming. Yeah, yeah, he was doing really a cool. stream. That was pretty cool. And uh, Blast Master Zero Three is the finale, they said, of this uh, exactly. great new series. So, so that's of, um, that's really cool. Uh, but what about you? Anything else that really caught your fancy? Um, Not so much me, but my dear Vivi saw Alchemic Cutie, and I think that was a game <laughs> she really wanted. So uh, I guess that's a game I will be seeing on my TV <laughs> quite a lot in the future. And it did look pretty cute, so... Uh, for those who are into that kind of stuff, uh, that looked pretty fun. Cool. Okay. Well, I guess that probably wraps it up for this little news segment here. Um, you know, we should probably throw it back to the other guys. Uh, but yeah, thanks for joining this little section, and thank you for uh, the upcoming work you're going to be doing with us. So No problem. So proud to be part of it, and I uh, hope we can be back to do more Japanese and use and such on the show weekly. But we're not the only ones talking about retro games here, of course, uh, because Alex also has joined in on the fun. He is, uh, he's going back and I'm, I'm so happy and delighted to see this. So Alex, why don't you tell us about what you picked up? Yeah. Um, about a week ago I started, well, I've been looking for a number of months for an older, uh, generational PC and I was looking into the Pentium three era, uh, kind of late nineties, 99, late 98, uh, to pick up a PC and start playing games on it. Uh, one, because I want to see a CRT again in my, my own possession and just see what that looks like, but also because a lot of these games from back then look and play honestly a little bit differently in a better way on hardware from this era. So I went and scoured about and I found a Pentium 3 PC uh, on uh, the kind of local eBay here. And the best thing is I go to pick this uh, PC up and the guy already has it running for me as I enter the door and I'm like, okay, this is really nice of him. Uh, but the best part is I start talking to him. And this was up until last year, PC essentially from 1999 was being used as the family PC for over 20 years uh, in total, which I find amazing that it was even running for this long and had no problems. But the, you know, they were just using it for word processing and light internet usage. So. I essentially grabbed myself a family PC, kind of ready-made thing with like a net card in it and just integrated Rage, uh, ATI Rage Turbo something graphics, uh, AGV2X thing. Uh, that is not exactly what I'm looking for, but I have the components in it uh, for uh, a Pentium 3 machine, which I really like. So I then scoured eBay again, came across a different motherboard, some other parts that I'm gonna be looking into uh, and kind of reinstalled Windows 98 on it, patched it up, uh, as you can see here. Um, and, you know, it's working all right right now. The next kind of acquisitions for this Pentium 3 machine are going to be a number of uh, GPUs or, you know, graphics accelerators. I've got a Voodoo 3000 on the way, Matrox MX440 or 400, I think it is, and a ATI Rage 2. C or something like that. Mm -hmm. So a number of, uh, I think two AGPs, 
one PCI uh, GPU. And well, I'm just going to keep looking to expand uh, in terms of hardware because so I think this is so cool. That's addictive, yeah. isn't it? Let's get this right, Alex. It's been a family PC for 20 years. It's still used up until about a month ago. So what OS <laughs> yes. was it running? 1024 by 768. No, no, OS. 20- oh, OS. Oh, it was running quite literally uh, Windows 98. See, uh, so this entire time. So, Alex, I, I've been thinking about this. We kind of laughed, and you're like, "Oh man, they've been using this as a family PC for that long." But the fact is, if you actually go and use Windows 98 on an old Pentium 3 PC, it's fast. In fact, oh, it's mega fast. It's faster than a lot of modern, lower end PCs you might be using a modern OS on. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, a lot of those Windows Vista, Windows 7, and even like you know Windows 8, and <laughs> some 10 PCs, you'd buy them at the store. They don't run as fast as a Pentium 3 with Windows 98. Now, obviously, you know, the workload is very different. Windows 98 is very, very simplistic in comparison. But the user experience is surprisingly fast and smooth. So, like, things like word processing on there will probably be perfectly acceptable. I think the only limitation really is just internets. Like, websites really aren't designed for such old machines anymore. So, I feel like... The internet isn't great on such a machine, but everything else, <laughs> no. like standard stuff you might do, uh, I think it could work. Yeah, and I, I think it does work, and it works really well. And you know, one thing I've been trying out with it is just kind of modernizing it to the point where I can easily transfer files on and off of it without relying on like a network connection or oh, floppy Alex, disks. The way to do like it that. is um, so I actually you can install some USB support into Windows ninety eight that allows you to use flash drives or like hard drives. Mm-hmm. So I just keep like a USB uh, connector thing with a USB to SATA adapter strategically located so I can swap in uh, a drive basically as I need. So you just kind of plug it into your normal PC, put files on it, then plug it into the adapter in the Windows 98 PC, and then you can access it immediately. And it's fast, so reasonably fast. Uh, So that that Mm -hmm. actually is, I think, the cleanest solution for this. Yeah, cool. I mean, uh, I think I installed them the other day, but I haven't really been trying it out too much. Uh, I did transfer them over, but I haven't uh, really tested it out. But another thing that should be happening after this is that I came in contact with a a gentleman here who offered me up a Pentium 133 megahertz PC with like already like Windows 3.1 on it and everything like that. And I'm very tempted to just grab that because I actually do not remember this time in my life because I was too young. But my family had a Pentium uh, 133 megahertz PC. And I had a 40, sure. 486 back in the day. So yeah. it's a whole different so, world. So that was the sort of mega upgrade if you wanted to play mm-hmm. Quake properly. I think we were yeah. on Pentium 90s at the time. But you needed mm-hmm. a Pentium. The 486 just didn't cut it for Quake. Yeah, 486 was below minimum requirements. You could play it. <laughs> I did. I mean, I think I talked about this before, but I played it in the smallest window possible at about five frames per second. It was terrible. Uh, when I eventually got uh, an AMD K6 233, it was uh, life-changing, uh, at least mm-hmm. temporarily, until I realized that the the K6 was significantly superior, that the K6 was inferior to Intel's Pentium MMX line at the time when it came to floating point calculations. Yeah, uh, right? if I require, if I recall, so Quake games, especially with like a Voodoo or any other 3D card installed. They didn't run very well on the K6. <laughs> yeah, um, I can't wait to see what I can do here. But uh, for right now, this is just my personal project, something I'm doing just for me. Um, but in terms of stuff, I would maybe want to bring it in on, on the channel, you know, when something like um, 
Diablo 2 Remastered comes out, I would like to take a look at it on the old PC maybe as part of that video where I cover it. Or uh, just in general, over the years I've been playing older games using things like uh, DG Voodoo on PC. And uh, you know, what does DG Voodoo output look like, uh, which emulates kind of uh, Voodoo graphics and 3D effects graphics on modern PCs? What does that look like in comparison to the real 3D effects rendering? You know, something like that. Just like, I don't know, just, but at it's the moment, just for fun. It's definitely fun. I use mine all the time. It's it's a great time to mess with these old PCs. And like you say, like you mentioned Diablo 2, that's exactly a great use case for videos. When we cover something and reference an old PC game, mm -hmm. it's nice to be able to actually show it running on a PC from that era because it is different. It's not it's not going to look just the same if you run it on a modern machine, usually. So Yeah. Okay, so let's move on. Uh, we're going to talk for a little while about uh, the projects we've been doing recently. So I guess we'll kick off by talking about Need for Speed Hot Pursuit, I guess, which was a bit contentious. Yeah, um, so this is just a chance to kind of run down, you know, we've put the video out. Um, and one of the things that really that really sticks out to me when I when you read stuff on this is like, I feel like I really try to, to help people understand what's going on, but I, I'm not sure that everybody quite gets it because... One, there's still this mistake that it's like somehow thought to be a native next-gen game when it's not. And then two, I feel like the point about Xbox One X having those issues, some some folks might have missed. So the idea is that, you know, what we what we showed was that in this one section of the track, the, the Series X just dropped frames and it was, you know, bizarre. So it was kind of a fun exercise to explore as to what was going on. And we could do that because... The support went back to the last gen consoles mm -hmm. and you could play it on xbox one x and that generally was above uh ps4 pro like throughout the race by about 10 frames per second and they kind of scaled exactly as you would expect until you get to that exact section in which case the frame rate drops to like 30 something uh just there so what we're seeing basically is that the the xbox series x the, the additional power afforded to backwards compatibility is not enough to overcome a dip that serious. So the dip on 1X is so significant that the BC function on the system, I guess, whatever is available to it, was not enough to get it all the way up to 60, basically. Yeah. So I think that's, you know, that's basically the issue. Is like there's something up with the game in that specific track area and it's visible on Xbox One X, but it only became visible once the frame rate was unlocked. So that's, you know, it's not about what the new machines are doing so much. It's just the whole point of the video there was to showcase, help people understand why it was slowing down and also look at, like, you know, if you trace it back to the older machines. So I see why it can be complicated to think about it that way, but it is worth considering. Yeah, I think back and back. Or back compat plus doesn't tap into the full potential of the machine by any stretch of the imagination it's just an accelerant almost and uh, the results vary um, i think from my perspective the thing that's sort of baffling to me is that when you consider need for speed hot pursuit the original pc version which seems to be the basis for remastered that was a really well optimized game it was phenomenally good um, mm -hmm. as was, i think so uh, burnout the paradise there's some reports of stuttering on the old PC version, but I'm not sure what they're talking about because I was playing yeah. that back in like 2011. Uh, no problem at 60 FPS. 
I think I even mentioned I was using 4X SGSSAA at the time. Oh my gosh, yeah. Uh, getting 60 FPS, it looks so smooth and so clean. And this was on like a GTX 260 or something. Yeah. So <laughs> the thing, so yeah, it seems like the game itself isn't as optimized as it could be. I actually think it should have been 60 FPS on like the base consoles from last gen, really. It really should. Absolutely. Uh, but beyond that, I mean, you know, when when we're talking about all this backwards compatibility stuff, it's always interesting to consider uh, the Xbox One X is closer to the Series X in terms of raw capabilities than PS4 Pro is to the PS5. You know what I mean? So, like, mm-hmm. I feel like due to the, the differential there, you could have a PS4 Pro game drop under 30, and as long as it's not too far below, you might still have enough grunt on the PS5 to push it all the way up to 60, basically solve that problem. Whereas because of the One X is so much, it, you know, it's basically half of what the Series X is. Uh, I think you know it doesn't. You don't see it scale. Uh, the scale is a, it's a different jump, basically. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, there's other things uh, that might. You know, I've been thinking about this quite a lot. I mean, if you think about the PlayStation Five, it has 36 compute units, just like the PS4 Pro. Um, you get this huge acceleration via a faster GPU clock. You've got a fundamentally uh, awesome jump in CPU power, uh, which is common between uh, Xbox and PlayStation. But I'm just wondering whether those architectural similarities between the PS4 Pro and the PS5 might be paying off for them a little bit more because we are seeing um, games that are routinely delivering over two times the frame rate. So, you know, um, the Sony first party stuff we've been looking at recently, you know, Days Gone and... um, uh, God of War, they could drop beneath 30, but they were pretty much flawless on PlayStation 5. And mm-hmm. uh, I guess The Last Guardian was another one when you used the disc version. Again, that was oh. just a huge improvement uh, on the PlayStation 5 compared to the PS4 Pro, which I suspect yeah. combination of CPU and GPU there. That's an interesting one too, because The Last Guardian, especially off the disc, I mean, on PS4 Pro in the high-res mode, it would often drop to like 20 FPS uh, it, it was really not smooth at all. Mm. Uh, so, mm-hmm. yeah, the PS5 just kind of powers right through it and just runs yeah. it at a flat 60 in that mode, which is crazy. So, what, what is the exact yeah, bandwidth? The, the scaling is really good between them. What is the exact um, uh, GPU video memory bandwidth on PS4 Pro again? It's 400 and well, it's, it's, it's shared, obviously. It's shared, it's 448. Yes gigabytes per second versus 218 on the pro so again that's another gigantic leap i'm wondering if this what we're seeing is also uh some ps4 pro games were at the way they kind of designed them for their resolution target and um frame rate cap whether or not they were actually when you unlocked the frame rate there actually bandwidth constrained in those moments is what i'm wondering too uh so which is maybe another different area area of scaling we'd see in comparison to Xbox One X to Xbox Series X, uh, because there's a, a larger multiplier, like you just said, Rich, uh, uh, there between PS4 Pro and PS5 in terms of memory bandwidth. And you know, there's like you know, new color compression, all these other things that have been happening in the years uh, between PS4 Pro and PS5 that we don't see on the Xbox One X to Series X jump uh, so much so. So that would be interesting if that's the, the truth, but who knows? Uh, sort of talking about other content that's in the works uh, that may or may not be published by the time you watch this. Uh, well, I've been working on RTX 3080 uh, laptops, 
uh, something to look forward to there. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really quite fascinating to see a new generational leap in the mobile space, but also the issues that there are in basically scaling down high power desktop parts into necessarily lower power notebook mm -hmm. parts. And the question of whether an RTX 3080 remains an RTX 3080 <laughs> in the mobile space when it's a very different performance profile. But that's something we can talk <laughs> about at a later date. I think more interesting in terms of production is probably the project you're working on now, John. Yeah, so I'm finishing up a, a video on Dinosaur Planet and Star Fox Adventures, uh, which should be up by the time this is out, depending on how things go. But uh, it's nearing completion right now. Uh, this is basically that N64 game that leaked that Rare had been working on that became Star Fox Adventures, and I thought it would be a fun thing to look at for this video. But it turned out to be more challenging than expected because it's very, very um, unstable. After about the hour and a half mark, like the game just kind of breaks. You try to enter this cave and it crashes. So it basically turned into this game of like reading what I could, trying to find ways to to break and break through and see areas that you shouldn't otherwise get to. Like there's this one section where you just to get into this desert area, you just have to stand around these trees and whack these things off the trees. I don't know why, and they don't always <laughs> appear either. But when you do it, eventually uh, you hear a little chime noise, and then you walk up to the statue that's blocking the way. And she puts the item in there that you didn't have, by the way, and then you have access to the desert. So you can explore this whole massive, beautiful area that wasn't really accessible. Mm -hmm. But then eventually you find a temple and there's just a guard there. And as soon as you touch him, the game just hard crashes again. Crazy. <laughs> uh, so basically it just crashes constantly. You can't play that far into it now. But I have been following a lot of the community work and... You know, I'm not going to be going into too much of that stuff for this video. It's more about comparing and discussing, you know, the similarities, differences, changes. Uh, but there are people that are, like, super hard at work and kind of piecing this thing together. So I do have some hope that at some point we'll see a version that's, like, polished up and, and actually feasible to play through instead of just, like kind of broken <laughs> so how does that uh, it, it's been but on top of that one of the craziest things is i realized uh i had interview footage about this that i filmed back in 2017 i think when i did the donkey kong country retrospective with the with the gentleman at playtonic and kev bayless was in that video and i had actually recorded a lot of extra interview stuff about n64 and gamecube era and we talked about this i had almost forgotten so i reached out <laughs> to him again just to you know say hey uh I found this old footage. I, I'm going to use it again. Is that okay? And he's, yeah, of course. So no problem there. So it's basically like some lost interview footage I had where he kind of discusses some of the, some of the situation around changing it and their, you know, trip to Japan to discuss things with Nintendo and how they were going to change up the game and just stuff like that. So it's, it's winding up to be a pretty uh, interesting project that I hope people enjoy. Uh, we, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to it. One thing which isn't on the docket, looking at the list here, but I'd quite like to talk about it because it is newsworthy. Uh, Alex, you're working on a new take on Horizon Zero Dawn oh, on sure, PC, yeah. which I do think is actually uh, quite worthy of discussion because uh, Jim Ryan came out uh, last week to say, hey, we're actually going to be doing a big bunch of stuff on PC. And um, Days Gone, I think, is the first title that they're going to be uh -huh. uh, rolling out um, but obviously we do have horizon zero dawn which has been problematic i also think that it's i think a, a lot of people are looking at the back compat plus titles on sony first party and saying hey why aren't they doing horizon 
why why isn't Horizon running at sixty frames per second? Yeah, and I think possibly some of the difficulties that have been faced on that port might be a reason why we haven't seen that yeah. uh, PS Five patch. I don't know what you think. Alex. Yeah, that's the that's kind of. Um yeah, my video will come out at some point and uh, people will see what I have to say. But I think in general, Ryzen was just a game designed around 30 FPS. And as soon as they put it over 30 FPS and allowed it to be unlocked, it showed a lot of problems that maybe the engine had that like implicit assumptions it made that started not working so well at higher frame rates and things like that. Um, so maybe the reason why they can't just put out a BC patch to unlock Horizon Zero Dawn uh, for PlayStation 5 plays because it would actually just not work very well at all like we've seen on PC. So that's one thing I think uh, that we can assume, safely assume based upon the results we've seen over time. Uh, that video will come mm -hmm. out and I do think Horizon Zero Dawn's quite a bit better than launch. It still has some oddness in it, uh, but I think that's just all legacy baggage at this point that would just maybe be a lot of headaches and work to get working uh, in, a, in a way that we usually expect. Um, yeah, I think also when you look at something like Days Gone, uh, it has an Unreal Engine 4 foundation. Um, it looks like unlocking the frame rate does result in instant success. <laughs> <laughs> same, with, same with Ghost of Tsushima. Yeah. So those titles coming to PC, uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing what can be done with them, um, given the vast increase in potential uh, performance that's on offer there. Yeah. As well as different display formats, of course. Yeah, uh, ultra-wide would look great. And something like Ghost of Tsushima. <clears throat> in terms of games that I yeah. would be personally interested if they brought over, a little bit of port begging, uh, would, would be Dreams, probably, because I feel like that game is a, is a very... It's a creatively oriented game, and those kind of games have a great success on PC over a long period of time. Uh, whereas of now, maybe the audience is smaller, and... Um, it's not growing as much as they would like. Putting a creative game always on PC uh, just lets it flourish. And usually a, a game like that does really well. You know, I think that's the next step. Definitely. Mm -hmm. uh, let's move on now to some uh, Q&A from our Patreon supporters. Uh, that's this is right. really important. I'm really looking forward to answering some of these questions. Uh, obviously, Patreon supporters, join us on the Discord um, put any questions you have to us there. Really interested in hearing what you think. All feedback welcome. And <laughs> the only stupid question is the one not asked. Thank you. <laughs> as yeah. say. Um, but we've got a question here, a really straightforward one from uh, Cliptacular. <clears throat> and I'm quite interested in this one. The favorite game to demo HDR to people who don't know what HDR is. And man, we've got, we're spoiled mm. for choice here, I think. What do you reckon, John? So I think the two that I still go to that just like floor everyone. Uh, first, I throw on Gears 5 and I load up the introduction sequence in the first mission because that's just, I feel like when you actually see that running, it's just kind of like, it, it's, it's a true wow moment. And it's really, it, it's, the game looks dramatically better with, with HDR enabled than it does without in a way that's, usually not so significant like you don't usually feel like like that split so much but i really feel like when you turn off hdr it just sucks so <laughs> much out of the game's visuals which you know they're still impressive but it's it's really good in hdr uh but then the other one is an old favorite of mine is um i still think gran turismo sport i 
mentioned this many times, but there's something about the way that they handle the the lighting in HDR there, like the contrast of like the high intensity beams on the on the car headlights uh, versus the you know like the the glow of the sky and the various other electronic elements around the scene combined with the natural natural lighting in the world. Uh, somehow together, it just has this super intense, vibrant look that feels like somehow it makes it look almost more photorealistic somehow in a way where it just, I, I don't know, it, it really impresses every time I look at it. So I feel like those two games, you know, there's plenty of others, but to me, those are like the best demonstration material. Right. Uh, I'd like to put in Ori and the Will of the Wisps on Series X. Oh, that's, a, <laughs> that's another one, yes. Especially running in 4K HDR at 120 at hertz. 120 that's, hertz. That's the that's the game changer. You've got the complete package. You've got the resolution. You've got the HDR, and you've got the smoothest locked 120 hertz presentation I've seen on a next gen console, and it's just awesome. I just can't recommend it yeah, highly enough. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it's you're right. That that would definitely be the third one for me as well. It's just <laughs> the, there's that section early on where you grab the torch. And just like the intensity of the fire contrasted against the the dark and stormy background, it's it's unbelievable. It, it really feels like it just leaps off the screen. So those games you've got to see in HDR, mm-hmm. definitely. Um, let's have a look at the second question, uh, which is if I can find the right thing on the Google Doc here. What are the team's thoughts uh, as far as Apple possibly making more inroads into gaming? as the M-series chips mature. Mm. I'd quite like to take this one. Um, I think, fundamentally, the technology is looking really awesome. And I think I mentioned earlier about the RTX 3080, uh, this whole idea of um, bringing lower power uh, versions of higher power parts. Apple are kind of going around it the other way. They've got their lower performing um, parts for the mobile phones, state of the art in their class. And then they're kind of pumping more power, expanding uh, cores and uh, GPU cores, bringing it into the mobile space. And we're seeing some really good results there. Um, I guess my question really is how much uh, macOS as a format can mature. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess there is scalability because because you can run the same code across iOS and macOS. I don't know. It's just developer buy-in, really, and obviously getting you know the sheer amount of devices out there and sort of evangelizing that they're gaming capable. Yeah. Um, I think Apple's done a lot of good work here. The Metal API, for example, uh, is designed to get more performance out of out of what is a fundamentally mobile architecture, mm-hmm. uh, mobile GPUs. Some good inroads being there. Apple Arcade seems to be going down really well. Um, but, you know, it seems to be sort of a different type of game on macOS. Uh, we don't seem to be seeing much of the AAA juggernauts there. And maybe that's a good fit for the hardware. I don't know. But um, I don't know. What do you think? I think, um, I think uh, the, the hardware is really cool. Um, it's just like a different design that, than what we've seen because it has a different uh, assumptions. It doesn't have legacy and all of these things. It's like a fresh start. So it's very interesting in that aspect. Uh, in terms of the kind of inroads into gaming of bringing maybe AAA games into the Mac OS kind of platform, I actually think even though Metal's cool, uh, I think it's a little bit of a hurdle because 
there's like no cross-platform Vulkan support in a, in a simple way. Uh, and, you know, portability is a big deal for large AAA games. And there has to be less of a hurdle there, I think. And maybe also a willingness of audience. I actually don't know anything about the, the OS, uh, you know, OS X audience or the Mac OS audience these days that uh, is into gaming. I just don't know. Those are like untouched waters by me. I can't actually purport a, a, an opinion about that. I mean, that question came from Joe Esposito, which uh, I uh, I forgot to mention. Sorry about that. Um, but yeah, I, I'm kind of curious about this because obviously mobile gaming is huge on iOS. The hardware is state-of-the-art, first-class. Uh, Android devices kind of struggle to catch up to, uh, to Apple hardware that's like, you know, one or two generations mm. old. So there's a huge opportunity there. It's just a case, from my perspective, of whether... We're going to see different types of games, how that, you know, how Apple Arcade is going to evolve, that kind of thing. I mean, you're an iOS user, right, John? Yeah, I mean, I am, but just, you know, obviously just for the phone. And I don't really, I'm not a big mobile gamer. I play occasionally, but the fact is, it's like um, those games drain your battery pretty hard. And I don't really like to have the device that I rely on for communication to uh, run dry because I was playing around with some game on there. So I don't, I don't find it that appealing personally, but it is interesting that with, with this move into like sort of the, the, the more desktop OS space that they're doing here now, this like synergy between them, there is some more potential. Like I, I did catch uh, the new Mistwalker game looks interesting. You know, Sakaguchi, hmm. the creator of Final Fantasy, he's launching a new game on Apple Arcade and you know, that actually looks pretty interesting and nice. And I was kind of like, oh, that's a phone game. But, you know, you could play that on something that's not just a phone, maybe. And it becomes more interesting there as well. So, I don't know. It seems like like it's it could flourish into its own separate thing that might be pretty appealing to its audience. But I don't think it's going to necessarily come in and, like, replace anything else. It's just hopefully kind of continue to evolve as its own thing. I actually really want a new Mac <laughs> uh, I've got an old 2014, 2015 Mac, and uh, these new models look really enticing, but uh, I they suspect do. the uh, second-gen ones would be the ones to, to, to look out for. Uh, third question from Docs here, really interesting one, current and future rendering techniques that we should be keeping an eye on. Um, I want to go first on this one. I just think uh, we're going to be seeing so much from AI, from, AI, from um uh, NVIDIA and from others. Uh, remember, Microsoft are still looking into their own AI upscaling solution for Xbox Series consoles. Um, if we look at what DLSS has achieved in such a short period of time and just how flexible the tensor cores are, you can be damn sure that NVIDIA isn't stopping just on AI upscaling. I'm just hugely yeah. excited. That's what I was going to say is I actually think there's a lot of potential for AI usage in other areas of mm -hmm. gaming that we've not really seen explored before. And I suspect there's a lot of people doing a lot of research and development right now on potential uses for this stuff. And it's the kind of thing that we won't necessarily see right now, right away or in the next year or so even, but uh, it's something to keep an eye on because I think there's a lot of potential use for this uh, technologies. Mm -hmm. mm, definitely, um, Alex. You guys already touched on AI, so I will kind of avoid that for a little bit. But looking at the... MetaHumans demo that uh, you know the guys and people at Epic uh, just brought out 
this technology is a really good one for game development because it's essentially um, trying to lower the burden of producing highly high quality character content of character models, uh, character animations. It's it's essentially a great platform for reusing a bunch of scan data and a bunch of rigging data and allowing you know these things still to have a high quality. I think this is less geared towards people just consuming games, but I, I like the idea of this kind of proceduralized shared data environment uh, that something like MetaHumans represents because it'll mean games being developed in the future where the content pipeline is not the biggest sunk cost, uh, which is huge for modern AAA games. Yeah. You know? See, this is interesting, Alex. I think this is actually the kind of thing that could really help a lot of those open world RPG games as well. Like developers yes. that need to create, you know, like you look at Bethesda, it's like we have to create all these NPCs. They all need to speak to the player. Doing that at a high fidelity is extremely expensive in mm -hmm. the old way. You know, employing technology like this could really allow them to create a workflow that's actually more feasible, uh, less expensive and would provide a significant boost in overall yeah. quality. I, I'm looking forward to seeing what comes out of it over time. I mean, just to mention it really quickly, but uh, we didn't maybe mention it in the article we had on it, but this tech has already been out there for a couple of years. It was originally developed by 3Lateral, and they demoed it on Unreal Engine years ago, and then it kind of disappeared for a while. Uh, they demoed it uh, at that time to integrate it into what was then the CryEngine or Lumberyard for Star Citizen. So Star Citizen has it now. Uh, it's just really interesting to see. I wonder what the next step is because it still requires the initial step of having these humans being scanned in and then being touched up to be perfect enough to be uh, implemented in the metahumans like verse of like shareable data. I think final uh, word from me on this one, current and future rendering techniques, well, current techniques, uh, obviously, and I'm surprised you <laughs> ray tracing. Yeah. There are rays yeah. to be traced, obviously. And if we look at uh, the recent announcement from 4A Games on the revised uh, Metro Exodus, uh, that promising um, not a native 4K, but a 4K fully ray traced yeah. experience for the next generation consoles, Crazy. current generation yeah. consoles, if you will. And again, that's just hugely exciting stuff, and I really can't wait to see what's happening there. But it does signal that talented developers are getting to grips with um, with the ray tracing hardware within the AMD SOCs and the new consoles, and are able to produce, fingers crossed, really stunning effects while not sacrificing 60 frames per second, which I think has been the standout win of the generation mm -hmm. so far. So yeah, that's that's another thing I think we definitely Ooh. need to keep an eye on. One one other thing I really want to toss in there real quick is I really want to see um, more work done with fluid yeah. simulation. You know, right. whether it's like particles, you know, water. There's all these these all these ideas and concepts where I feel like this is one area where we're still really limited in terms of what games are doing. You know, things like smoke, for instance, it's still done typically with like billboard clouds and things like that. Uh, but having like real simulation of that, you know, in terms of interacting with the physics engine and everything, or like water that behaves more realistically, this stuff is pretty expensive, I think. But it's something that I've been wanting to see used in more games for many years now. Okay, uh, next question from uh, Patito Loco. 
probably mispronounced that, and I do apologize. Some of the craziest leaks DF heard over the years. Nothing is ever, for me, going to beat the PlayStation 3 Slim making its debut in a Philippines mm-hmm. marketplace uh, a month before I saw it in Gamescom. That was my craziest <laughs> leak. That was just remarkable. These kind of really grainy photos emerged, and nobody could believe it, but it kind of was <laughs> the, the PS3 Slim. Uh, I don't know what you guys have got to say about uh, crazy leaks. John? John? Oh, man, leaks. Uh, that's a tough one. I mean, I guess, you know, I wasn't thinking so much leaks, but the, the thing that always comes out to me is I remember the old uh, the GPU and the power brick stories around the launch of <laughs> Xbox One is kind well, of coming up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, speaking of crazy leaks, there have been a lot of crazy leaks um, about the PlayStation 3, uh, PlayStation yeah. 5, sorry, which just just turned out to be complete nonsense in a similar oh, yeah. vein to the to the dual layer ES RAM and the yeah. second GPU in the power brick for Xbox One. I, I do have something to say about this. Maybe I'll do a more fully featured video about it. But look, when a platform holder makes a technical disclosure in the way that Mark Cerny did with the Rhodes PS5, they're doing it primarily because the information is with developers and they expect it to leak. So, you know, this idea that they're holding back some massive game-changing features, you know, whether it's RDNA 3, 4, or 5, um, it's, it's simply extremely unlikely because if developers know about it, it's likely to leak. Therefore, they take mitigating uh, steps, which is public disclosure. And that's the way it works, and that's how Microsoft did it. Now, obviously, there was um, more disclosure from Microsoft than there was from PlayStation and a kind of no comment approach from PlayStation when we asked them for stuff like, well, hold on a minute, there are these DX12 Ultimate features you've not talked about. I think when we get no comment, we should kind of assume that they just don't want to talk about it and we can draw our own conclusions Mm -hmm. from that. But there's, you know, whenever there's a new console launch and we're kind of possibly going to see it again with the next Switch, everybody hopes and wants the best and I can understand that. And then we get, you know, insiders coming forward with with stuff that just isn't, you know, doesn't make sense. I guess Nintendo don't do technical disclosures, <laughs> <laughs> which which sets them apart. But fundamentally, you know, um, please just listen to what the actual people are saying. You know, the people working on the projects are saying about their projects. And bear in mind that if there is stuff missing, um, it's going to leak anyway, but not in the way that we saw with, with some of the PlayStation and indeed yeah. Xbox stuff. So that's kind of all I've got to say about crazy leaks on next-gen consoles. Um, okay, next question comes again from Joe Esposito, which is, does a competitor come from within the console group or can someone else succeed where Stadia is flailing? I assume this is about uh, streaming. Uh, which is your favorite topic, John. Um, But, well, look, all I'm going to say, again, is uh, Microsoft are building a really impressive sounding uh, streaming platform. Uh, The Scala SoC within Xbox Series X can be virtualized to act as four Xbox One S consoles. I think that's quite a remarkable technological achievement. I think um, streaming is going to be appealing to a particular type of audience. Uh, 
but probably not our audience. And I think it could be quite transformative in markets where it's impossible to launch a console or very difficult to launch a console. Increases accessibility because uh, virtually everyone across the world, um, all of those territories have access to smartphones. So that makes a lot of sense. I think Microsoft are well positioned for that. I think Sony agrees because they've signed a deal with Microsoft uh, for, for handling PlayStation mm -hmm. streaming going forward. Um, but we're never going to fully overcome the latency issues and yeah. the image quality <clears throat> issues. John? I've given my take on this kind of stuff before, and it's just... I think you're right that Microsoft is probably very well suited to make this work. I would be okay with streaming as a, a sort of a support style, basically an additional feature. You know what I mean? Where it's like, okay, you're already in this ecosystem, but you can also stream oh, the cool. games to a mobile device. That's kind of my issue with Stadia is that it's focused specifically and only on streaming. Uh, and streaming is not a way that I would ever want to seriously play a game. Uh, but... In a pinch, it could be useful, though looking at my own habits, the only time where I'm like, okay, well, I really need access to this is usually, well, it used to be when I was on a plane, which I haven't done in a long time, and the internet there wouldn't have been fast enough to handle streaming, so you'd want something local anyway, but I, I mm -hmm. could see potential there, and I, I really think that that's going to be the key, is launching, launching a streaming platform alongside a platform that already exists, which is why, you know, it worked. It could work for Microsoft, Sony, and the like, but Stadia, um, I mean... I guess the kind of, yeah. I guess the kind of disruptive competitor in this, and I think Stadia just gave up on it completely now, um, would be a something that could make streaming interesting to the audience, maybe where it's not the target audience immediately, would be if there was some sort of streaming-only killer app uh, equivalent where the technological basis for this can only occur because of streaming tech. Like a massive server of people all doing one thing together where local clients could never handle that. Too much latency, too much whatever. But a data server sending out images of this happening, that's an idea that I thought could have happened with Stadia, but since they gave up entirely on the uh, developing of their own titles, uh, I don't think there's... I don't see this as something happening. That's interesting, Alex. It has occurred to me. Maybe the issue is so much that a lot of these platforms are focusing on, well, here's the games you can play anywhere else, and we're also going to make it playable and streaming. But what about a service? Like, you look at stuff like Minecraft or Roblox or mm -hmm. some kind of platform for a game. Uh, what if you had a game-style platform, like a Roblox kind of thing, but it was all yeah, based right? on streaming? Uh, so it's not so much about, you know, playing other games there. It's about that experience using streaming. They could build something that's completely different, taking full advantage of the potential of, like, having a giant data center at your disposal. That actually could be yeah, really so too, interesting, I think. I don't see it as anything any time soon yeah. will happen. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There was a lot of features for Stadia that were announced, like, you know, you could share a link and people could join your game. That's kind of really sort of forward thinking stuff, but it never kind of happened. Some of the stuff did like the split screen um, stuff, which was basically taking other people's stream and integrating it into your own. But I don't consider those game changing features. Um, no. Yeah. And speaking of game changing, uh, a game changing question here from Bob Dutch, which <laughs> I suspect is a super. <laughs> 
for, for our, our producer, which Bubsy game is Rich's favourite? Um, there, there are no favourites because they're all awful. <laughs> um, the first one, uh, I, yeah, this is the thing. You know, the first one was hyped so heavily. I was there, you know, I was working on a Mega Drive mag at the time. It was hyped so heavily. It was going to be the new Sonic. It was going to be, you know, absolutely massive. Bubsy was everywhere. The game came in and it was, you know, adequate, you know, sort of Chester Cheetah, too cool to fall, cool spot level, not the sort of Sonic or Super Mario killer. And uh, I suspect I'm taking this question <laughs> way too seriously and Audi, Audi is chuckling away to himself as he edits this. But uh, hey, the first Bubsy is not a bad game. I think it's actually it's very mm-hmm. okay. It's a it's a solid platformer. It's just that what came after it kind of it's pretty bad. But that's would you, really the problem? Would you play Bubsy or Chester Cheetah Too Cool to Fall? I would play Bubsy. Cool spot. Uh, <laughs> that's tough. There, see, there, it's, it's no, no Rocket Knight no, or no, Sparkster, no. really, is it? No, it's, no. Let's let's be no. honest. That's kind no, of what we were not. hoping back in the day. Okay, well, I think that's it. I think that's our first yeah. show. I think we've gone through the entire uh, gamut here. Hope you enjoyed it. Again, Patreon supporters, any questions you have, send them our way via Discord. If you're not on the Discord and you are a Patreon supporter, please do get involved. It's awesome on there. And uh, just generally, if you want to uh, support Digital Foundry, please do consider our Patreon. It makes so much possible you know it gives us the time to do some of the crazier projects that we'd like to uh, investigate but couldn't really otherwise and of course you know just the concept of hey we're doing a pretty good job here we like to think and supporting us a little pretty awesome stuff but i guess that's all from us so thank you john first of all for this Mm -hmm. of course happy to be here (laughs) and alex i know you've had some technical difficulties Hope everything has been sorted out. I think I think this will look good at the end. Uh, but also thanks to Audi for uh, who's going to be editing this. Okay, well that's it. As usual, uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, like, subscribe, share, ring the notification bell. Uh, but that's all from us. Thanks for watching.